Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thank you for joining. I am Vic. Uh, I am so happy to be welcoming back to the show uh, Dr. Adam Hunziker, who is, for those listeners, regular listeners of the show, know that uh, Dr. Adam Hunziker is the brother of the other Dr. Hunziker, Mike Hunziker, uh, who has a reoccurring segment, uh, Straight Talk, on the show. So, uh, but this Adam is a actual doctor, not just an academic doctor. Um, and uh, he's going to, he was on the show last year during PTSD Awareness Month uh, for June. And here we are back into June for PTSD Awareness Month. And so Adam, man, thank you so much for being back on the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, obviously such a, a very important a topic and one that's, you know, resonates with me and clearly with you, um, you know, being in the trenches. But um, for our listeners who weren't privy to our first conversation, could you just sort of tell us, you know, who you are, where you're from, uh, what your background is, and, you know, why you, you are the person that you are in doing this fight? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I uh, got my undergraduate at Lehigh University. I got it in behavioral neuroscience. Uh, I'm the child of a counselor. My mother was a counselor. And so, you know, I was probably primed to do that in the first place. And I went through, they took me off the streets, off a civilian job and sent me to the Uniformed Services University, uh, trained me for free, paid me money, uh, sent me through the system. I went through and I got my uh, psychiatry residency through Walter Reed. Um, and they uh, sent me over to the 82nd Airborne. I was the division psychiatrist for the 82nd Airborne, which is basically like the psychiatrist that takes care of the division. Um, I've been through, I've run their uh, Womack Army Medical Center, the inpatient uh, psychiatry unit. That was one of my responsibilities as well. Uh, I did a couple of deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. I took care of mental health care. I ran a clinic at Craig Joint Theater Hospital there um, in Bagram. And then I also... Uh, did the USASOC job. I was the, the psychiatrist there, the command psychiatrist for USASOC. That was my final stint before transitioning into civilian life. Uh, I went and I work currently for a, a facility. It's a four hospital system right in the shadow of Fort Bragg. So I still get the chance to take care of a lot of veterans, uh, a lot of veterans families and active duty families. And actually, most recently, active duty. That's a new entity that we haven't seen a lot. It's just there's a lot of need. So we take care of that. I take care of four ERs, and I take care of the inpatient consult. So I take care of people who may be suffering from depression, schizophrenia, and also have medical problems as well uh, on units. So that's what my current responsibilities are. <laughs> yeah, yeah just, to, just to name a few, right? Um, but yeah, you've, so you mean you've been uh, on the four, you know, really uh, on the front lines of this um, with the folks that um, are sort of on the uh, I guess the merry-go-round of, you know, high risk, um, high intensity exposures, um, when it comes to mental health and trauma. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? We, for those, uh, who didn't tune into the last time we talked, you really did such a wonderful job of opening my eyes, um, to, what trauma really is and how a life in the military in particular in within the combat arms and then for you even more particular within the um soft community the special operations community um there really is very little in there that doesn't sort of attack at these systems of systems that we had talked about on our last show. Cause you just, I guess, hit some of the wave tops on like energy, what the, what energy does to the body, uh, what, you know, this whole, this idea of a system of systems, our body being, a, a sort of, um, really, uh, interlocked with each other. Really everything is, is sort of codependent on each other. I mean, you just sort of go into what is trauma? What does, where does it come from? What does it stem from? How do we get, how did we get here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, I, you know, 40,000 mile view. I think it's important to kind of say where we're at in psychiatry today. 
uh, that's very important because lots of times people say medicine's medicine, it's all the same, or they say psychiatry is just a bunch of, uh, you know, just a bunch of BS. But I think the important thing to understand is where psychiatry is at. So uh, medicine, some things that medicine has, they have uh, etiologies. We call, uh, you know, pathogenesis, the actual what causes this illness. And we know it, or we, we believe we know it. Every day we find out more and more, like heart disease is something we knew where it caused heart attacks. But every day we learn more about inflammation and its roles and different things that cause you know, heart disease. But in psychiatry, we really don't know how the human brain works on a fundamental level of that systems of systems. Like we can understand what happens when you hit a stroke and then you can't speak correctly or when you have sensation you know, abnormalities or different issues. But we don't fully understand what helps that affective system function at that global level that causes executive function, that causes emotions. Um, that causes one person to want to get out and go do things, one person to sit at home and be depressed and not want to function at all. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we, instead of having that knowledge, it's called empiric medicine, where we follow a constellation of symptoms as they cluster together, and we start to call those different diagnoses, right? And that's incredibly important in how you approach mental health, because your options are to do nothing, right? Oh, well, we can't do anything because we don't know the cause. So let's just watch this person suffer and, you know, study it or try to decrease suffering as we you know, progress through. And that's a very important understanding because a lot of people get all upset because they're like, oh, well, do I have bipolar disorder or do I have schizophrenia or do I have ADHD or it's all these different things. It's, it, we don't fully know. And that's an important thing to, as you wade into psychiatry, because if you're too you know, concrete on the diagnosis, you're like, oh, this isn't PTSD, get out of my office. Uh, you will not help. And if you think that we're going to cure things, like bring it from 100% severity to zero, you will mm -hmm. also because nothing that I treat gets to zero, right? We help decrease suffering until we figure out what's actually causing these issues. And so uh, as you weigh into that, we talk about the, another concept, which is there's a finite bandwidth to the human mind. I, I can't say that enough. Many times in medicine, if we can't define it, we tend to think that it's moral weakness. That's where we always go to. It's the first thing. We used to think seizures were moral weaknesses. Um, you name it, you put your finger on, there's a bad history of us saying it's all in your head. And so one of the important things to understand is there's a finite bandwidth. And I think we talked about this, like SEER training, the actual opportunity to take people to their breaking point cognitively, where they can't think anymore because they've been up, they've been tortured, they've, been, they've suffered to the point where they are not really with it, they are breaking. And that's where we take them to, knowing that there's a finite bandwidth. Uh, yeah, so I think the analogy that you used uh, last week was um, like the um, radiation monitor that folks that work on uh, you know in uh, nuclear power plants have like they yeah. know you they put the suit on you put the little counter when that thing's red you can't go back in there man like you've been too too much exposure yeah yeah and so it, it, there is a finite bandwidth of which we have we just can't measure it because we can't measure when it's broken i mean that's a fundamental paradigm like if you don't know how it works you don't know how it breaks so anybody who says they know how these things work it's impossible until you can tell me how does the human brain work on a level of motivation? Like what makes one person motivated and one person not? What allows one person to handle trauma and one person not? And it's just because we, we haven't elucidated the causes and the functions of the system. So it's kind of like ambiguity. You have to be able to handle ambiguity to weigh in on these issues. Because anybody who knows absolutely what's going on, is, it, they're not telling the truth. And they're not truth in lending. And so when we talk about stuff like there's, there is constant tug and pull and what are these things that we're studying? And in some things, there's going to be stuff that it's going to be diseases. It's going to be straight diseases. It'll be biologic issues. It'll be genetic issues. It'll be overuse injuries and some like an operating system issue. My Microsoft, you know, Windows isn't functioning correctly versus my computer's on fire. Like these are <laughs> different. So it's just the computer's working. The system just isn't working real well versus the computer's completely broken. Um, and they're going to be different things. So you have to kind of feel your way around it through experience, you know, and this is fully in my lane of saying, you know, this is what my belief is as we enter into these realms. PTSD is, it's complex. It's a very simple diagnosis for a very complex presentation. Like we, I think we talked about this last time, much of the, the research and studies behind post-traumatic stress disorder was on one-time events, bad car accidents, one-time singular traumas, not necessarily people who survive prolonged war, exposed to chronic traumas, multiple traumas. I mean, there's more research and study into it now, but it's just it, our understanding of it is is still in its in, in its infancy. Yeah. Um, 
And so but really it's a symptom or an issue of chronic sympathetic overdrive. Like it is basically sympathetic arousal. We've talked about that term. We can elucidate if you want to, but it's basically dysfunction. It's when your sympathetic arousal system is not functioning adaptively. It is maladaptive at that point in time. Mm -hmm. You can't control it. And so essentially, uh, I, don't, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I mean, your brain in that sort of fight or flight, sympathetic, heightened, uh, ultra, you know, hyper awareness just sort of locks you into that one moment, right? Because it, you don't want to have to deal with it again. And so you're just so hyper aware that that could, that could. And so you're just always in this sort of fight or flight mode, right? It might. Yeah. And that's what I would pull it into that systems of systems. There's four major prongs that I see uh, when I see uh, like people with PTSD. And, and the first prong is that is like your hyper arousal system is just all screwy. Uh, it's either overreactive, like your zero to 60 is like way too fast. You're getting activated by stuff like slamming doors or other sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's really not, it's just, it's maladaptive. It is not functioning correctly. But then there's another wing where this is more like a, it's, it's like a spiritual journey. It's a spiritual harm. Like it's actually hurting you. It's a, it's an ethical dilemma that you're stuck in because you're, you're dealing with complex things that seem antithetical. Like it's just, it's wrong. You're seeing the wrong. There's a lot of the books that you taught that you, you know, sent me to read and some of the other issues that it talks about, it really talks about that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hits your soul. And so that's part of the journey that you have, you can't separate it. It's kind of like someone violated me, you know, human beings aren't supposed to do this to other human beings, whether it's rape, trauma, war, you know, abuse by parents. It's just someone has violated the, the conduct, the ethos of what human beings should treat each other. And that's part of that journey too. And then there's depression, because there's a big problem with depression that gets in there. It's just, it's that overuse, that phenomenon of you use the system too much and you fundamentally shift gears. And we've seen it from animal models. Uh, you know, God forbid some of the terrible things we've done where we, we literally stress animals to the point where they won't even, they won't even try to thrive anymore. Like you put them in water, they won't even try to swim and they just drown because it's, they, we have stressed them. We do it with shocking, intermittently shocking the floor. It's terrible, mm -hmm. but they sit there and they, they won't try to thrive anymore. And that's part of that just messing with a, an organic creature so much that they finally just, they just stop. There's some biologic thing that says stop that overuse. And the last thing is comorbidity uh, because everybody, when they, when they don't know what's going on, they're stressed to the max and they're falling apart. And could you imagine, like, you probably can't imagine being on a sympathetic drive 24 seven for way too many days and you're just done. And then you fall back into maladaptive behaviors, drinking, uh, you know, sex, um, you know, just misbehaviors, like anything to get that adrenaline back. And that's incredibly important. So it's like all those prongs traveling forward. So, and we call it PTSD and walk out the door. And so it's kind of like everybody, we, I think I talked about this before, like when you're putting your hand around an elephant and, you know, the four blind people trying to figure out what an elephant is, is mighty like a tree, you know, it's wispy like a snake. And it's just, it's okay. all these things, but it is that system breaking down on multiple levels. Um, yeah. And you, you say that some of those things, like, let's say it's like the, the moral injury piece, you say, oh, that's not biologic, that's something else. And it's like, then what makes a psychopath? You know, I mean, truly someone who does not feel, we talk about empathy, like someone who does not feel when they do something wrong against another human being, they see them as objects, not as humans. And like, there's something biologic that changes that. So there's some kind of harm that happens there where people are traumatized in that sense, and they have to process it. And the reason I say I delineate the different lines of effort because you have to approach them differently. Like you can't right. treat, it's not going to cure your moral injury. You know what I mean? Like it'll make you feel a little bit better, but there has to be growth and travel and talking about it and spiritual journeys and it, right. you can't approach the same thing. And so comorbidities, you can't treat that just like clean PTSD. It'll take you sideways. So. Well, and then to even further complicate things, this idea of energy, um, you know, and I, I really liked what we had talked about, you know, for like, especially heavy machine gunners, oh, yeah. man, you're behind a 50 cal, just get rattled out. And so when you do walk into, you know, to go, I guess, to go back to the nuclear power plant technician thing, and when you do finally walk in to go clean the rods or whatever, your counter is already pretty full just because you may not have experienced any, uh, sort of ethical or psychological trauma, but your body has just been getting slammed through training evolutions, workups, blah, blah, blah. So by the time you finally do get in country, you're not stepping into the 
into the reactor with a full with a full uh an empty gauge like you're already like halfway full just because your brain is getting shaken and rewired every time you go to the range to qualify with a weapon right I don't want to, you know, like one day when we're both old, old men, we're old men, but old, old men, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I need, I need two, two more olds there. Yes, to, we're going to realize that, you know, thoughts are biologic things and you, you know, you, we can get as philosophical or not about you, but those energies, right. To watch a dead child on the side of the road, be passed by as everybody rolls you know, by because they got a mission to do or something like that. That is energy that is processing. There's a system that has to process this energy and it's every bit as traumatic as it is to, hear a loud sound that actually literally causes trauma. So, you know, just to rehash real quick on what we talked about traumatic brain injury last time, the signature injury of GWAT was coup contra coup. You know, you get hit, you get smashed, you hit your head, you hit the back of your head. And then what we started realizing recently when things calm down more, is there's so much more dysfunction to the gentle, like axonal injury that we see from shearing forces, right? So you talked about the concussive forces, blast injuries, just not the one that makes you maybe feel a little out of it and maybe get your bell rung a little bit in the moment. But over time, just over and over and over and over again. I mean, just think about when you when you use a, a weapon, if you ever shot your M4 without using hearing protection, yeah, in your yeah. ears, that is concussive and energy damage. That is literally the, the neurons in your ear are dying. Like that's what that ringing sound is. It's like their last scream. It's like I've been damaged or I've been shocked. And so it's just it's one of those things where you really we don't understand how the human brain works. But to think that it's not biologic, like not a biologic system, that we're not breaking something. And so I just want to enforce that over and over again. Like we, in psychiatry, many times people try to separate it out like a different specialty. They even do mind and brain as separate things in certain you'll, – you'll talk to certain specialties and they'll be like, oh, these are separate things. The brain is still the brain. I stick a screwdriver in your head, your feelings go away. That's how it works, right? There's a spiritual aspect to things, but it's just – it's still part of your brain. It can be overused. And to use your analogy, when you go in and you fry the sucker – you fry that emotional system. The function of your affective system is to engage with other human beings, to give you motivation to interact. And you fry it, right? You just fry it. You say humanity is terrible, humanity is terrible, humanity is terrible, humanity is terrible. And you fry it. It causes damage to that system. And then you do that the second time or the third time. And it's just like radiation. Over time, you're going to be burning that system. You're just burning it down. And then you like when you come home, Many people don't get a rest in their affective system, right? Now you're coming back and, you know, at the height of the war, you're already gearing up to go back out again. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. so your life is crushing you. It's not like even a, a pause in the pause. You're, you're just, you're, you're burning the system even farther down. Um, and so, yes, but just to your, what you talked about with traumatic brain injury, it's a very real thing. And it's much more subtle than we're giving it credit to. So it's just, it's the, 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 what we're seeing from concussive forces is, is frightening. Yeah. Well, let's um let's go into some of the things that you have been um you know uh sort of looking into some I don't know what we'll call them advancements for you know new horizons since our last conversation um as we are looking at TBI uh, PTS and the difference um you know how to attack this thing if you do adopt a system of systems model um, you'd mentioned before we uh, started recording. Some of the things of um, you know medical maybe some medical innovations um, in the introduction of psychotropics. Uh, I know a big thing for Hollywood types is like oh I'm going to go do ayahuasca like I'm going to go down to the you know Yucatan um, and do ayahuasca and have some shaman and apparently that I don't know is that all just um, sort of um, uh, just word of mouth sort of data or are we actually seeing some of that stuff pay off like are there actually ways you could rewire the brain uh, so you're 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 getting into my opinion piece now right because <laughs> i'm an opinionated person but it so let's talk about complex systems right so we're trying to say uh, just to give us a lay of the land for a discussion like this. I, I don't think we talked much about psychotropics last time. It'd be an interesting conversation if we had like five minutes to talk about what these medications do. Um, and so like when we talk about psychotropic medications, right, which line of effort are we treating? I, I have to say that because it's complex, right? Like some people are substance abusers. That comorbidity that we're treating, they have a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, have either predisposition. We can go down substance abuse and talk to until my face turns blue. But that is a huge wing of treatment. 
right? So like people get stuck in alcohol, people get stuck in drugs, people are coping with their pain and their other things by going numb, right? And so uh, some of it is that moral injury piece, right? And so that's why we have to separate that. And some of it's just straight organic depression. So, uh, you know, and this is, I'm going to get probably pilloried by this by my, my colleagues, right? But stuff like Zoloft, its function is to increase the feel-good neurotransmitters. It does not cure anything. And that's something to, to wrap your head around because it's okay. It's not like Tylenol ibuprofen cure your knees, right? <laughs> it decreases the suffering so that you can go about your day because how are you going to go about your day if you can't even go and work? If you are so debilitated by your depression, you can't get out of bed, right? So if I could take it from a 10 to a seven by increasing serotonin, it's not curing you. Serotonin in creatures make things feel like things are going to be okay. Large amounts, that's called MDMA. Like if I give you so much serotonin that it is dripping from your ears, right? So bad that it is destroying cells in your brain. You feel euphoric. You feel connected to human beings. It's kind of like that mania, the mania that we talk about, right? It's sheer energy. It makes you yeah, feel X, great. man. X and Molly, right? <laughs> what it is. And that's, that's, and so ayahuasca, a lot of those, a lot of the LSD, they're just tons of serotonin hitting different spots and they cause hallucinations and feeling great and feeling connected to the world and whatever but it's a neurotransmitter. So we're like hacking the system, right? We're putting nitrogen inside the engine and it's just going, right? And so it's not curing the fundamental problems. Those wirings, who knows what's going to be the cause of this issue? Like who, who knows if it's going to be a wiring issue, like a neuronal damage part? Like we don't know. The brain does rewire, rewire but rewire slowly, mm. right? Memory, learned memory is rewiring. That is literally a brain reorganizing. It's just- Yeah, that's, your that's, why, that's why boot camp is 13 weeks and not six weeks, right? <laughs> It's time to re, re, rewire. So it does rewire, but it's just also one of the things there's probably damage on a, on a, a cellular level. That's one thing that we're really getting into in science. It's just on the cellular level, like even genetics, it's not just the genes. It's how the genes are read. That's what's fascinating. So stress can affect the way that your genes are read. It's fascinating. But you know, like on, on a more gross level, when we use these psychotropics, we're using feel-good neurotransmitters that make people feel better as they go about their, their day. They could say it's artificial. I totally agree, but sometimes you gotta have enough Tylenol and ibuprofen or the good old vitamin, you know, and Motrin to get up and do what you got to do to function. Because otherwise, you don't have a job, and then you're gonna be very depressed. Um, so, but I, I bring that back to say, what effort are we treating? So, uh, are we trying to do psychotropics? Typical psychotropics for, uh, you know, these kinds of issues: PTSD, antidepressants as a huge class. Main function: increasing serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine making feet people feel a little bit better. Um, other typical ones, anticholinergics, like think about Benadryls and strong medications like that. And really what that function is to do is to make you feel kind of tired, is to blunt that sympathetic arousal piece to it. Uh, there's a medication that's had a lot of effects with sleeping issues called prazosin. It's, you know, they talk about the nightmare medication. It doesn't make nightmares go away. It decreases sympathetic arousal. It's actually the blood pressure medication that kind of calms you down. It decreases sympathetic arousal. So what happens is it makes it so you don't wake up in the middle of the night from the sympathetic arousal, but it, you may sleep through your nightmares. But it's just something to think about. Like that's how it functions. It really just de it blunts your sympathetic arousal. It makes it. And you'll, you'll hear that over and over again because a lot of these medications either blunt sympathetic arousal or improve mood. That's really the main function. And those are the healthier medications. There's some other ones that are a little less healthy. Like we always talk about risk and benefit, right? So if I don't know what causes your illness and I don't know, I know that these medications aren't going to cure you, I'm going to give you something and I have to weigh the risk and the benefit. I want to make sure I give you a medication that doesn't cause more problems than it's worth. Certain medications can cause a lot of problems. Benzodiazepines, you've heard of Xanax, Diazepam, all those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Alcohol, they work on GABA. Uh, that's how they function. Uh, you heard of gabapentin. That's a seizure medication that works on GABA. So it's the number one inhibitory neurotransmitter in your, in your body. And that causes risk because, uh, you know, when you get there, that's when you go through withdrawal and all those pieces. Uh, sleeping medications, the Ambien's, the Lunesta's, they also work on GABA. So you got to be careful when you come to certain medications because some of them can cause problems. A lot of the new ones that you're talking about, like, you know, the resurgence of MDMA, uh, the resurgence of like uh, esketamine and ketamine. Uh, the the ketamine and ketamine both work on NMDA. Uh, a lot of those are also paired with very robust therapy sessions, like a lot yeah. of them because they're research hospitals and like, you know, Yale's and, and facilities like that. They're very intensive therapy as well. And so do they make you feel good? Absolutely. If the low level antidepressants work that take six to eight weeks, make you feel better. The one that takes 20 minutes will also make you feel better. 
if you pair it with therapy, will it also make work? Yes, without a doubt. Now the question is, can you can you bring to bear fifteen thousand dollars for every soldier that's suffering from PTSD? I don't know, man. That's that's a whole nother level. But if you pair antidepressants with large amounts of therapy, it will also be rather beneficial. Um, but again, that's the one-two punch of anything that we treat right now. Talking about it helps. I mean, let's talk about that. Why does talking about stuff make people feel better? Yeah, Ready I to go. <laughs> I can't say that I know, but I know that human beings have to suffer in groups, especially normal not people that aren't antisocial. There's a piece to it that is a rewiring, right? It makes you think about the world in a different way. So especially that moral injury, it helps approach mm -hmm. the moral injury. As far as depression goes, especially when you talk about rewiring, if you get somebody out of a slump to start moving, to start thinking differently, there's a fundamental change in the way a human being thinks when they're depressed or when they're you know have severe trauma. It just it changes because you got to remember. I think we talked about this last time. You have about a little brain that can cogitate on about 12 pieces of data at any given moment. So that 12 pieces of data, like even in our conversation right now in our separate rooms that we're in, there's many more than 12 pieces of data. But your brain and my brain, they've come together. They fill in all the gaps. They add a good amount of emotion to it, right? Because emotion, like in your amygdala, says, this is a great experience. You know, I get to see an old friend, right? It's awesome. And then some people who are depressed, it says, things are terrible. You're terrible. Everything's terrible, right? And so that's that. You get your 12 pieces of data. I'm talking on the phone, and I'm a terrible person. You know, I'm a has-been. Why am I even talking on this phone? I don't deserve to be on this phone. So it's just like those things where it's like how your emotions flavor it can dramatically change how you see the world. And when you get depressed, it fundamentally changes. So as we talk about any intervention with psychiatry, we just got to make sure that we're saying, which line of effort are we trying to treat? Are we trying to treat moral injury? Are we trying to treat comorbidity? Are we trying to treat true organic depression? Are we trying to treat you know that hypervigilance, hyperarousal piece? Because they're all separate. And if you just smush them together, you're going to fail. Because that circle, I always like to say this to patients, it's a cycle. And normally, it's a cycle with you start getting depressed, you start getting very anxious, you stop sleeping, then you get more depressed, you get more anxious, you stop sleeping, then you have family problems, and you start drinking to try to make it, and right. the, the, it turns into a nasty wobble, and you got to hit it from all different parts of the circle. Yeah, um, it, you know, I think we had talked about something that I hadn't even remotely considered, uh, but the last time we talked was like, I think you had cited that, and I don't think you actually provided any... Um, or maybe you did, and I, I just can't remember, but it was the idea that uh, folks who are suffering from PTSD, uh, especially later on, tend to fall more um, because there's – was that? Are you talking about like with traumatic brain injury or are you talking about was PTSD? It, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't uh, PTSD. It was, maybe it was either TBI or hearing loss. Folks with hearing loss were falling more. Uh, which was obviously creating injury, which is then putting them out of commission, which was then adding certain, like you said, sort of what line are we talking about? And then how they all sort of are in a lot of ways in conversations with one another, because if you have someone who can't hear, so he, he or she are having maybe issues at home because their significant other, their partner is tired of having to repeat themselves all the time. And it's not really that intimate if I have to say it three or four times and, and then processing disorders. Yeah, no, that's that. Yes. So part of the brain injury that we see, right? We, the systems of systems, uh, your brain is incredibly delicate. And the most, the first things that go, uh, you know, I do a lot of dementia care in my current job. I love it. You know, it's kind of, it's almost tragic, but you get to see lots of different presentations of how the brain's not working real well, like which part of the brain. And you see an early executive dysfunction. Like the first thing that goes is like your, linear thought pattern, how you go from one place to another, right? And the last thing to go is like, who am I? Where am I? What's going on? You know, the, the orientation, that's like your last, that's your full moral pulses. That's right before it goes, right? And so when we talk about executive function, like those gentle neurons that connect your whole brain for integration, whether it's sight, thought, complex thought, like it's just, they're the first things to go because they're all over your, your brain, right? And so your executive function is some of the first stuff to go. And auditory processing is fascinating because, you know, you think about how it hits you, it hits your ear, right? So it has to process, first it has to get through your ear, of which many veterans, you know, damage, right? They're right. hearing their actual auditory due to sheer energy force exposure, right? You shoot a couple of Carl Gustafs, your hearing's never going to be the same. Even right. Um, and so 
once that gets damaged, that actual physical part, when you actually get to your auditory processing regions of your brain, right, there's like, you know, a bunch of different ones that also receive information and produce language. And those are those complex like Broca's and Wernicke's areas where you like receive auditory information, create, uh, you know, language production. And so those things start going and you just don't experience the world the same way. And you see it in extreme in dementia patients as they get older. Like if you're deaf, your, your, your cognitions, your cognitive function is going to fall off the planet. Like it's going to go. So if you're blind, your cognitions are going to fall off. You just tend not to use those muscles. It's much akin to if you lay in bed for a week, like, cause you're sick and you can barely walk after that, even though you're a healthy 40 year old male and you just can't get up and move after you get COVID because your body just laid still for so long, it atrophied. Um, so without a doubt, you, you increase falls because you're just your sensory understanding, but that's that auditory, you know, processing where you're, you may hear okay, but you just can't decipher and discriminate between yep. different sounds. That's some of the brain trauma that we were seeing yeah. uh, from exposures to like blasts from breachers. Uh, from even 50 cal exposure, like extreme 50 cal from Carl, Carl Gustav, the high energy weapon systems. Yeah. People but are not even getting hit near. You're just being, you're just, like you said, just being on the sort of delivering end of it. It's, that's, and so I, I think it's also important to understand like PTSD is the diagnosis du jour of the, of the soldier. I, I think, you know, we have talked about it before. I, I loved at my last job. Uh, there was a picture, it was called like the soldier or the injured man. And so it showed like, you know, it's an artist rendering from probably the turn of the century of like all the injuries someone could get on the battlefield. He had like an cut arm, an arrow in here, a club, you know, bludgeoned head and all this other stuff. And it's what does a human being that's been in GWAT look like after 20 years of, of war? And it's chronic pain because he's been running around and you know, battle rattle. He has been... Yeah you know every thursday he's been doing all this stuff so the chronic musculoskeletal injuries the chronic traumatic brain injury from pugils to combat to army fitness to wrestling to yeah. you know, just being you know, whatever that you're doing you know there's there's trauma like if you've deployed you have more likely than not seen some pretty terrible things and been exposed to some pretty terrible things and then you know i loved it like in Oh God! What was it? Was it the team? What was the the book you had me read? The Team Bravo or whatever? When it's yeah, like Bravo their guys, company. and they had to come back and they had to go to basically promotion. You know what I mean? Like they had to sit there and try to get for the next rank after all that. Like if there's anything that's more, you know, like you know, did you finish your TPS report than that? There's nothing. <laughs> the only difference is, could you imagine if one of his buddies had been blown up right before he had to go there and be like, "Hey, I've been looking at your TPS reports. You have to file them on Goldenrod." And you're like, oh my God, like I, that just, but you're talking about just overuse, right? Depression f falling into it. So, you know, traumatic brain injury, trauma, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, right? How, how many times have you shed weight in the last 30 days to get ready to rock and roll and get your best, you know, PT test. So that way you can look as good as possible. Like we don't talk about that a lot. We're an eating disordered organization, right? And so it's just alcoholism. Uh, you know, chronic liver injuries associated with that testosterone, right? And it's just all these these things that come together, and you have to look at that. You have to look at that to approach it. And you can't separate it. You can't say, "Oh, well, you know, it's all PTSD. It has nothing to do with his raging disc bulging that he's done because he was wearing fifty pounds of armor <laughs> running around, you know, Afghanistan." Like that takes its toll on right. Him. And he wants to spend time with his kids, but he can't because his back hurts so much. So he's home, but he still can't do anything with his kids. And because he can't discriminate the sounds that are coming out of it, and they sound like yep. nothing but a screech cacophony because they can't tell the difference of what their kids are saying. And so they just get <laughs> irritable because that's irritability. That's another cause of like trauma when people are just like, they don't, and you, it's fascinating when you see old people. Why do old people get irritable? It's because they have difficulty deciphering what's going on. Like literally, their processing is limited, it's more limited. So it just sounds like more of a cacophony. Like their, their brains have difficulty with that executive dysfunction to say, you know, Adam's talking to me right now, and Adam said, "Can you help me?" Right, and so instead, it just sounds like, rah, 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 and then just like, get out of here, like, go away, get off my, yeah. you know, lawn. Yeah. And so, it's it's just part of that irritability is a creature's response to environmental stimuli, and when they can't understand it, they respond like a soldier responds, which is mean and fast. And so, uh, it's just it's it's a fascinating constellation, complex presentation, and we call it PTSD. They say you should talk to somebody and come back to your next appointment that's in six to eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, you know, looking at your your uh, your uh, service record based on where you were and what you said you did, seems like you're about a 40 percent 
I would get help, but you don't have to. <laughs> but there's, Next. there's oh, it's, it, you know, that's, uh, I don't know when we're going to talk about the pack deck, but that's something that, that's, yes, that's, that's what I was sort of leading into is, all right, so what does care look like? And are we getting that? And do we even have the capacity to uh, meet this where it, where it is? Across the board, civilian, military, everything has tripled or quadrupled. Like I can't, the, the amount of children I see in the emergency department has quadrupled. The amount Actually, of yeah, could you could you talk about what the PACT Act is for those who aren't aware? PACT Act was really the 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 primary function of it was to talk about you know the burn pit exposure and things like that. But there was also a lot of parts that came in in addition that open enrollment for lots of people, especially for mental health care. You know, people seeking for you know like all good at you know congressional actors. There's lots of different things that are available to people. The most important things to remember is that there's a lot more eligibility right now, a lot more presumptive diagnoses, which is basically saying if you served in a war zone during GWAT, you know, you're you're probably presumptively exposed to burn pits. And so part of that, you know, is it's it's going to be a lot more people eligible for care, which is good. It's totally good. Uh, the, the downside to that, and it also opens up some availability for like mental health care, like you can just walk into an ER and ask for, you know, like say you're, if you're suicidal, you can just go to the emergency department and, you know, you, you will be taken care of. Um, but some of the, the, the bad sides to it is, you know, there, there's limited resources. The VA is a, you know, it's a capitulated mo or capitated model. So there's only so many providers. So I think the last time we talked, like it was on the, the VA news talking about there may be 400,000 backlog cases. So if there's 400,000 backlog cases, we can't even determine who's, you know, ill or disabled. That means there's going to be a lot more people in the system trying to get care. And it's right. a good thing, but it's going to be a big change. Um, and so it's good for veterans to know that, but it's also good for veterans to understand the fact that there may be a waiting line for a lot of care in the VA or other systems as they, they go to it. Even our systems, you know, I see people in the emergency department every single day, man, and I'm seeing them, they're suicidal. And it takes me time to find lots of people follow-up appointments. And that's for suicidal patients. That's not for, hey, I'm, I'm depressed and my wife doesn't want to talk to me and you know, my, I'm irritable at my kids. So this is, it's going to be a thing. Um, we always say that, you know, what was it, the, the battle of stigma against mental health? I think we, we, we are winning that battle. Like people are identifying that there's problems and looking for help. And that's awesome. Now it's the time to uh, grow all those therapists and grow all those mental health professionals that are going to help us with the fight. Yeah. So what does that mean? I mean, is that, do we need to actually take on like an, an active recruiting campaign or do medical schools need to be funneling? Like how do we, so if we're getting, we're increasing access, which is good, but we're not meeting that demand signal with actual providers. Like what, what is, what is that? Where do we, where do we go? Uh, you know, where it is going is, you know, there's a lot more scope changes. I'm not sure we talked about this, but basically a lot of people, uh, their scopes have changed over time, right? So you're going to see a lot more PAs in the fight, a lot more nurse practitioners in the fight, a lot more okay. uh, since clinical social workers, you know, taking over for what traditionally have been different roles. And it's just, it's the, the need is there. It is great and it is there. And so it's a lot of people taking up different roles, a lot of more group therapies where there may have been more individual therapies. Um, you know, my, my advocacy, the thing that I really advocate for is, you know, soldiers helping soldiers. There's mm -hmm. nothing better, you know, like you say, hey, do you have a cigar club or do you have a, you know, something where you can see people's faces and you can do that socialization, you know, that just needs to happen in the first place to understand that people aren't alone. Because really, you want to start watching when human beings start falling apart. It's when they stop being social. You know, if you're a social being and you stop being social, it's it's usually a harbinger of very bad things to come. That's kind yeah. of like that. Um, you know, you well, see your dog. Like it's like you talked about earlier with like, well, why does talking work? Like, I'll, I don't have really a medical explanation for it, but it does. Nothing more human than than you know, talking and being around each other and, you know, you want to watch something crazy. I'm sure I can't talk about, but it's like that, you know, special with the chimp kingdom or whatever stuff. And it's fa fan fantastic to see chimpanzees, how complex their social interactions are based on like grooming habits. And we're like a hundred times more complex than that. You know what I mean? Like just to have those aspects and everybody shares it in a different way, but of socialization is fundamentally human. 
like that is humanity at, at its most to share pain and share, you know, like moments with other human beings is what makes us humans. Um, and it was also sets us up for moral injuries and all those things. But, you know, human beings and our complexities get us into those, you know, conundrums. They also get us out. They help us process it. They help us forgive. They help us move on. And when you don't, one of the most fascinating parts about like therapy, when you work with someone who's really not doing well, is like their internal thought process. It's weird. It's like, it's not fully formed thoughts. They're like weird, super negative short-term thoughts and they're cyclical. When they get real bad, they're just punishingly cyclical. You know, it's like, I'm a bad person. I, you know, like I just not a good human being. I've done lots of dead, bad things to other human beings. I, I should just be dead. You know, it's like just, just over and over and over again. And when you pull them out of it, you know, you help them recognize how not useful that is. Like, why are you punishing yourself? How do we move past the cyclical thought? And so therapy can be fascinating, but you know, there's also therapy in just talking to another human being yeah. to share burdens. Talk about in therapy is the first thing is to build a rapport with a person, you know, to, to know that someone else is sharing your misery is incredibly powerful. And so you can you break it down and how you want to, but yeah, that's exercise, exercise groups, veterans, exercise groups, fantastic. Like how many veterans have you talked to, or maybe yourself who experienced, you know, discovering that there's other exercises outside rucking, running, and, you know, doing, you know, stuff like CrossFit, like there's lower impact cycling clubs. There's a, a million different things that people, veterans can get excited about with exercise that doesn't destroy your spine. But <laughs> now, now imagine this, imagine uh, if you are the guy that was a stud in the military running your eight, what is the Marine Corps thing? 18 minute miles. You know what I mean? Like yeah, just, minutes, just three mile. That's right. Rocking all the time and you're doing all this awesome stuff. And now you're, you know, you got, you got out, you got retired, you transitioned out and now you can't run because your spine's shooting nerve pain down to your toes. Your knees don't work quite right. And you're not a stud. How are you going to get exercise? You're just going to grow fat and keep drinking. Like, what are you, what are you going to do to get yourself back in like that mental pride that you have by looking in the mirror? And it's just biking different stuff, but getting people in that shift where it's like, Oh, I don't bike that's for wusses or, you know, I don't do Pilates or whatever it is you get yourself into that gets you back in shape, but it needs to be something that's better than Zoloft. If I can get a soldier that's, you know, all broken and not doing well, doing something, swimming, anything, oh man, that'll change their, change them right quick. But anything like all these different things that we can do that's outside a clinical relationship. And yes, we need many more clinicians like times 10, you go to the VA website, USA jobs, you will see a ton of open, you know, hirings in, that's not just us. That's everywhere. Like we can't find people to work anywhere right now. Right. That was one of the biggest yeah. issues is people leaving the workforce. Um, so well, that, yeah. You know, I mean, as we're sort of coming out of the, out of the COVID uh, world, yeah. we're finding, I think almost societally across the board, um, this, uh, I guess, reticence or hesitancy to sort of get back into the fray. Um, but that, that sort of leads me into what we had talked about. And you'd mentioned uh, Ben Kessling's book, um, Bravo Company. Yeah. And we have had Casey Tellison, author of Freaks of a Feather. Uh, his memoir just won the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation uh, nonfiction award. Uh, fantastic book. I don't know. I, I recommended it to you. I don't know if you had a chance to check it out. Um, we talked to uh, a, a few folks um who are involved with or are themselves experiencing pts um there's a lot of awareness right now uh we've got um david niece coming up his documentary the gift about uh corporal dunham uh and the marines of uh three seven in uh huseba uh is coming out soon he's going to be on the show and then mending the line another uh hollywood production that's dealing with a marine coming back from afghanistan and and like you said sort of finding one of these non-traditional therapy but the story is he goes fly fishing in montana with a vietnam vet and uh this vet sort of mentors and coaches him through his healing process anyhow um a lot of shameless plugs for the show here but um i do want to mention that there are there's a there's awareness uh, as we are in June PTSD Awareness Month. There seems to be a societal effort to at least be aware that these veterans, people who are suffered through sexual abuse, domestic abuse, I mean, God help us, we've got more 
uh, mass shootings in this country than days of the year so far. So, I mean, living through trauma seems to be a very American thing right now, unfortunately. Um, and so the awareness, I think, is there, and that's a good thing. My fear is, is that it is just the cause du jour. Um, what is some of your, from your side, from you, you being in the trenches, are you seeing this as a call to action? Are people coming forward and are there, you know, are there people applying to these jobs? Uh, are these people setting up support groups? Um, yeah, what, what are you seeing from where you are? Is this just, again, like the thing that people are drawn to because that's what, you know, we're just sort of following the mob or is this a real, is this an actual call to action that we're seeing? Um, well, for, so first thing I want to talk about Freaks of the Feather, one of the things I really liked about, you know, them talking about is the the canon, you know, it's basically the, the literature, the canon. And it, like, you know, you know, we talk about lines of effort. When we talk about that moral injury piece, uh, that, that, that tribism, tribalism that brings together is incredibly powerful for moving forward. And so that canon, you know, that lexicon, those books, the Iliad, you know, the, all these things that is kind of just, you know, you talk about stuff like legends, the heroes, right? If I walk down the street and ask people who Chessie Puller was, uh, you know, they're going to say, who's that? You know what I mean? Like the rarity are going to know, well, maybe in my community, because there's a bunch of veterans, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's vast majority of society don't know who these heroes are, who these people are, who these books are that have, you know, created this ethos of the, the the people that it is. And so I think that's incredibly important for that treatment. And that's the part of getting veterans together to do things together. Um, as far as the, the cause du jour, um, I will say that PTSD has become uh, a caricature of itself. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It is just a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, where it's like, that now there's different acronyms or different stuff for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I get it, you know, like I got the PTS or I got the whatever stuff. And it's like, it's, it's a good thing to get awareness out for people to be aware of things like i don't think that you know it being overdiagnosed. i think people are hyper aware of those traumas and i think that that hopefully you know at psychiatry period is going to open you know depression is going to be 12 different subsets ptsd is probably going to change just like we used to call dementia dementia that was it it was dementia what do you have you have dementia now there's Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. That was the next phase. Now there's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lewy body, tauopathies, like, you know, frontal temporal. There's all, because we're we, the science is expanding. Trauma will be the same way. Part of trauma is just normal memory. It is a terrible experience of which you are remembering, right? And that is an important factor. That's how the brain's supposed to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like normal things. So what we say about PTA is your response to that is maladaptive. Because if someone did something terrible to you, you should remember that. And then any kind yeah, of similar I think we range. talked about this last time too. Like um, it's why my son will only grab the hot pot once, right? Yeah. And I mean, you talk to a million people and they will have weird experiences that bring them back uh, to those moments. I told you my, you know, probably sharing my brother, it's good because I like to embarrass him. But, you know, he would have after his first deployment when you guys invaded, you know, he would have issues being on airplanes. And it was largely that probably that funnel experience where you're all funneled together and moving forward. And it would just bring back those same kind of, you know, feelings. So they're maladaptive feelings. They don't help you in your current situation, but it's reminding them of bad experiences or dangerous experiences. Um, and then, you know, I don't want to go a pipeline of the complexities that have to do with those bad experiences are also exciting experiences, right? So then the shame of feeling good about bad experiences and the, it gets complex. But yes, right. so it's like part of how it normally functions. So yes, do I think it's became, become, you know, uh, the action of the time? Maybe, you know, I, I don't think it's bad that people are getting more into mental health care for, you know, especially soldiers and stuff like that. But it, it is one of those things that gets in there. But as far as people get in the fray, mental health, uh, it has grown in popularity. I think psychiatry is like maxed out its residency again uh, this year. I can't speak to psychologists or therapists, but I know they're all growing uh, specialties and subspecialties. But the demand signal is outpacing it. Uh, you know, there's people out there also think that, you know, just ignoring it is probably what we need to go back to doing, right? They think there's suicide epidemics because uh, people, uh, it's, it's, um, it's it, I, I can't say it's not, you know, there's, there's, that's a belief system, right? That's when you get into politics and religion, you know, you're like, maybe it could be, you're right. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, Asian Americans killed themselves more often than white people. And now white people kill themselves more often. It's just, there are behavioral patterns associated with, you know, uh, these illnesses. That's why it's behavioral health. 
Um, the brain controls the behaviors, the behaviors control the brain. It's just a cyclical fashion. But to say it's one versus the other, I don't know, but I'm telling you right now, we're in an upswing times 10. We were winning the battle in 2019. Now in 2023, there is a lot of need. Yeah. Um, I, I think people are getting into it. People are realizing that it can be a rewarding profession. And it's also pretty tough, man. Like there's, there's a, for every good win story where you change somebody and save somebody's life, there's, you know, a story where you, somebody lost their life and now you're having to deal with that trauma of dealing with somebody who committed suicide. So it's, it's, a, it's a rough job, but I think people are getting into it. But do I think it's not real? No. I, I've, you know, you, there's lots of things where I can say I'm not the expert in, uh, but I've done a lot of PTSD treatment in different realms over the course of my military career and afterwards. And so it is a real phenomenon. Do we have it perfect? No, we do not have it perfect. I am sure by the time I get out of this career path, I will look back on these days and think of what a barbarian I was. You know, just mute Neanderthal. <laughs> like you know, treating, you know, antipsychotics with people is just it's I have to go to war with the with the army I have. I I can't go to with some yeah. theoretical right now. There's people that are suffering. If I don't do something, you know, they're gonna suffer alone, they won't do something. So it's just it's gonna change, but to say that it's uh, all a bunch of bunk that that's going too far, but it, it is getting a lot of, you know, like background with it. I have soldiers that come in and say, I got, I got problems with the PTS. I'm like, good. Let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's figure it out. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I think that's, that, that is the, you know, that's that the t-shirt I want to be wearing is like, let's figure it out. I think that's, that's a good, good mantra. Um, I'm and you show up to the ER and we'll figure it out. Like I'm the, the last stop before you do something stupid. You just come on in the ER and we'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not start with no. Um, well, one of the things too, uh, and I, I want to sort of transition into our discussion about transition, but one of the things, uh, oh, I guess in t just to follow up, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the support that you're seeing uh, looks sustainable or, or at least is genuine. Um, and it's not just sort of, um, yeah, like I said, the cause du jour. Um, but as we, one of the things I think a reoccurring theme in much of the popular uh, uh, depictions in the mediums, and it, it, it's pop, it, it, it's reoccurring because it's, it's real. And that is the, these transitions leaving your tribe, leaving your unit, leaving your, your guys, leaving your, you know, your devil dogs, your soldiers, and then being somewhere else um, outside of that tribe. Again, I think it just heightened, makes you even more hyper aware. Um, so all of these depictions show soldiers, Marines in transition uh, and then dealing with that transition. This could be this maybe is uh, a topic for our next our, ne our next episode together, but just as quickly as you as possible, what are some of your thoughts on our listeners who may be facing an upcoming transition or are in the middle of a transition? Uh, what are some of the things you could say to them as far as um, I don't know I, I best was practices? Yeah, master sergeant today, uh, and he was three years out. Uh, and we're talking about the way forward. And I told them three years out, what's your plan for getting out? I, I can't say it enough. Like, it's so funny to watch the life cycle of a soldier because my different positions had put me in unique positions where I saw people uh, as they first came in and like the 82nd, right? You know, 11 Bravos coming in for the first time, you know, the, the rough transitions of becoming inculcated in the United States military. Like, it, it, it just, it's like a wave, right? It hits you and your language changes, the culture changes, the attitude changes, the whatever changes, everything changes. And there's going to be this first group of people, a third, a third of soldiers that are not going to make it through their first four years, right? They're just not going to make it. It's mm -hmm. not going to happen. Uh, and then you get through the next phase where it's like, you know, kind of this, you went through your first tour, you got inculcated, you say, I could do this, I could thrive. And you're in the next phase where you're just like, you know, you're in steady state and you may not make it past 11. You may get fed up with the government and peace out. Or you may do it because you got whatever, you're stuck in it, you owe time back, who knows. But uh, Or you just love it, right? And then you get to this phase where it's like that last five years where you're either white knuckling or whatever in it, but it's just, it's it's that last phase where I advocate you you need to start transitioning then. 
Like yeah. your last five years, you need to plan it. Cause I think a lot of people just keep doing it. Like I'll do it another day. I'll do it another day. I'll do it another day. They hit 20, go past 20, get stuck past 20. And some of the times it's, it's, it's funny. You know, I've talked to Mike about this and stuff like that, where they get so stuck into the, the, the inculcation where it's like, I got to do 20. I got to have that retirement. I got to survive on it and whatever. And they'll actually lose money because they're still focused on that money. And it's just, it's, it's just part of that process. Once you're in the system and when you come out of the system, uh, it, it is brutal. I can't say that enough. Like some people, I guess, love getting out of the system and nothing changes. Like I, myself, I, I did not have that notable of a career. You know I mean? It wasn't like I was, I'm not some hero, but it was still very difficult to come out. It's hard to get out of that mindset. It's hard to change that thing, to, to change the people that are surrounded by. You will never have more purpose than when you were on the United States military. It's just, it's, I was a psychiatrist in the military and I'm a psychiatrist out of the military. I love my job out of the military. I love not having to wake up early. I love to have, not have to go to war zones and jump out of airplanes, but you, you have that purpose stolen from you uh, and you can try to fill it in, but there is never any more purpose than fighting the nation's wars and taking care of soldiers. There's just no greater purpose. And so that's why the transition is so paramount. Cause a lot of people go from, uh, you know, and I'm one of those guys who is, who I had a great career transition point. Right. It's like, oh, you can go be a doctor in the civilian world. Uh, we're going to pay you money and take care of you. Right. But there's a lot of people that leave. They, they, they don't have great purpose and they don't kind of have great vision. They go from like, I was a warrior in the greatest military in the United States military to I'm working at, you know, Staples. And it's not deriving, deriding Staples. It's just that you can't compare those two, you know, waging right. the nation and working at Staples, they will never be the same. And it has a, that you talk about that moral injury. It's the, the same as falling out of shape. It's the fa same as doing all that stuff. And it's, you know, I had this, it was a retired sergeant major. It was one of my first cases back, uh, you know, Walter Reed. And I remember seeing him and he was out of shape. He had all kidney problems, all stuff. He's all sergeant major, crazy as hell. And I remember just talking to him. I'm like, man, you don't look anything like a sergeant major. Accidental statement should have definitely not done that kind of therapy. And that snapped him too so hard. He went and started exercising again. He went and started doing that and stuff. And it was just, he, he thanked me for finding his purpose. And I didn't do anything but misspeak, but it was just that, that jarring thing that said, I'm not holding myself to that standard and found that Sergeant Major purpose where he was probably on his glide path to falling apart, you know, like just keep drinking and taking himself out. Whereas it, it is complex. It is difficult. And I hope nobody underestimates it. I know you went through it. I went through it. Every human being went through it. And, you know, I can still remember because uh, I, I had to sign it at the dotted line for at least 11 years. You know what I mean? Like I was yeah. like a citizen. Now I'm in the military for, for 11 years. And I can remember sitting there crying going, oh, man, what the hell did I just get myself into? Like 11 years of my life, you know, for <laughs> me to get. In. And I can still remember getting out and missing the hell out of it, being like, what am I yeah. doing in this? You know what I mean? Well, like, dude, I, I just started wearing pants that didn't have drawstrings, you know, just like <laughs> a few months ago. <laughs> So, I I went from my military uniform to now my civilian uniform. I have a bunch of pairs of the same color pants and a bunch of color the same color, you know, like button up shirts. And I change the shoes as it goes, but it's the same thing because it's it's indoctrination. But to leave it like you know, someday we're gonna get smart, maybe get smarter on the whole you know human resources aspect of transitioning, like bringing people in and getting people out, holding on to people longer, because uh, the vast majority of transitions look something like uh, in the military, you get, go through the taps system that maybe six weeks tells you how to like, you know, get your CV ready and, you know, get ready for yeah. the next job. And yeah, don't forget it. to set up your LinkedIn page. Yeah. And so it's, I don't want to say it's a joke, but it's just, it's missing the greater piece. Cause it used to be nothing, which is, that's terrible. You know, you'd come back from DMOB and they drop you off and you're civilian. That's not okay. Uh, but, you know, six weeks of talking about it, it's almost like, you know, how do you get yourself geared up to go to the next level? Um, and I don't know if it's, and a lot of people just go into contracting next. I'm not sure if there's enough contracting jobs for everybody, but it would seem that we are losing a lot of human resources that we don't just grab from our own active duty force that then go into the non-active duty force that we couldn't suddenly funnel into like its own insulated, whatever, like workforce. But that transition needs to happen a long ways out. If you are within three years, you are in the danger zone. Now is the time for you to start that transition process. And it needs to be biopsychosocial. It's going to be, how do I keep working out? What's my next job? Where am I going to get purpose from? Who is my support network from a social aspect? Did I get rid of my whole family, yeah. you know, my, 
Now I have nothing but the United States Marine Corps. What am I going to transition with him? You don't have that. You can't write that down in a piece of paper <laughs> at, at the very limit. Like be like, this is going to mentally support me. This is going to financially support me. This is going to be my purpose in life. Then you're, you, you need to start making maneuvers. Uh, yeah. Cause if you're in the last year, you are so far behind the, so far behind where you need to be. And so a lot of the time you can find a job, but then find the purpose and everything else that goes with it. It's tough, especially people who thrive in the military are social creatures. Rarely does someone who's not a social creature thrive in the United States military because it's such a social entity that you probably need to find something that is also equally as social. So, man, that's great advice. And like I said, I think, you know, I already got ideas on, you know, things we could talk to because, you know, we can, um, I think we spend another hour unpacking that and we should, um, just probably not tonight because I'm sure. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, we've got, uh, you know, I've already taken up so much of your time in at this point, man. So I, I really appreciate you sitting down with us. Um, so what, what's, what's next for you? Uh, if anything, um, are you speaking some anywhere? You got any conferences or anything coming up or are you just, um, in your, in your ERs just slugging away? Well, you know, so I work in four counties, four hospitals. Uh, one of our big dreams, uh, there's many dreams that we're trying to expand for, you know, trying to help more kids out because there's been a big boom in children. Uh, yeah. So we're trying to reach efforts right now is to do integrative care across systems, which is, it sounds easy, but it's very hard. And so <laughs> one of those things is how do we take care of the person in the community into the ER? Because I'm the the almighty backstop, right? I'm the you know, you, you go in the wrong velocity, wrong direction. How do we change this into moving it out of there? And how do we integrate with those systems that are doing that? Because there's systems that do it. So like, think about there's ACT teams that go take care of severe mental illness in the areas. There's who takes care of VA people. Like, you know, when you're yeah. suffering, it's not like you get depressed and finally we get you right this rain, right? You're still depressed. You're just at home. Are you leaving the house? How are we taking care of Department of Social Services? How do we integrate those people into our care? How do we integrate all these different resources that were all kind of like little pillars of excellence and sometimes not pillars of excellence, sometimes pillars of somewhat excellence? And how do we bring all those things in, you know, to to work with each other to do it? Um, and so that's one of the big things that we're trying to do uh, is reach across the aisle, shake some hands and get those systems actually running in the right direction together. Because there's an immense there are immense resources, especially when it comes to veterans in my neighborhood. Right. Like. I forgot what the last number was. I think seven in 10, you know, special forces guys retire right here at, you know, Fort yeah, Bragg. That makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. I'm sure San Diego, SoCal sees similar numbers with all the te the teams guys out of Coronado and stuff. Peace out. And that's the big thing. And so after our last meeting, I got reached out to by, uh, uh, he was probably wounded warriors. And so he helps us with some of those people to reach out oh. and he gives a lot of resources for people that are suffering that are part of GWAT, like they can bring a lot of money and resources and case management to bear. And so it's it's a piece of that is how do we integrate and leverage those systems? So that's my big effort is to get outside of the ER because taking care of the ER is easy, right? That's you're in my ER, you made it, right? You yeah. made it, we're good. I can at least keep you safe right now. Can I keep you safe forever? No, but you made it, you made it to the safe haven. It's how do I reach influence outside uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're finding them earlier. So when somebody's, you know, suffering, how can I get them in, maybe divert them from the ER into some like local resources or something yeah. else where we can take them to it's about patient programs or other things like that. So that's my effort right now. Well, then how can folks get in touch with you then if they've got some ideas? Same thing, man. You got my, my email. Uh, it's just it, send it like you can put my phone number up there. I don't care. Like put the phone number in my, in my email up there and say, you've got some good ideas. I live in Moore County. I cover Richmond County, North Carolina, Montgomery County, North Carolina, and Hoke County, North Carolina. If you got some ideas, man, send it my way. I would. I'm all about making friends and relationships and trying to do that thing where I get outside of the ER, uh, and and you know some part of it's just outside mental health too. Because some of the people I always should say like I, if you want to get the best referrals in the world, I remember in the 82nd Airborne, it'd be at six in the morning. At six in the morning, when you're running out there, you know, in formation and stuff like that, everybody and their mother be like, "Hey, doc." You know, I got to tell you about this person. And it wasn't the kid, the doctors that were telling me it. You know, it was first sergeants. It was other, you know, senior enlisted ratting people out and saying they needed help and stuff like that. And that's that's how you get in the community. That's how you get the that's how you get the people.
you get them before they show up in your ER. All right, man. Well, yeah, we'll definitely put your uh, email uh, into the show description. Uh, but Adam, man, doctor, thank you so much for spending this time on uh, talking through this just wildly important topic. Um, I, I mean, I don't know of anyone really that could say legitimately this isn't something that doesn't affect them directly, either at home or in their workplace. Um, so, yeah, dude, thank you so much. We'll keep this on the regular. Uh, I'm seeing your brother tomorrow, <laughs> and uh, we'll be sure to talk plenty of shit about you. Iterate the the not doctor, you know, like the educational doctor instead of the the, the clinical doctor. I need you to reiterate that for him. That's oh yeah, important. I'm gonna record it and then just play it on loop every time he tries to talk. I'm just gonna cut him off with that. <laughs> All right. All right, actual doctor. Uh, we'll talk to you later, man. Have a great evening. Thanks again. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Dick Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.